Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic Hark now hear the sailors The Mystic cry. Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. Through the summer months, I'm offering something a little lighter than our usual fare. This is because I need to take a break from producing a weekly program, and because you might enjoy some summertime storytelling to take with you onto the back deck or out on a road trip. Each week, I'll be reading from How the Light Gets In, a collection of my short stories published by the Anglican Book Centre back in 1999. Despite my urge to do some major rewriting, I've tried to leave these stories pretty much as they were, except where I couldn't help myself. I'll release two stories a week, one on Sunday and one on Thursday. If you don't want to miss a story... Be sure to subscribe on whatever format you use for your podcasts. And while you're at it, give the podcast a rating. That helps spread the word. I hope you enjoy these homespun tales as we all take our summer sun. Sweet Regret I heard a confession today, an infrequent event in the life of an Anglican priest, the old adage that has governed our use of the rite, all may, none must, some should, is understood by most Anglicans to mean we don't do confession, which only means, of course, that more should. The problem seems to be vagueness. Every Sunday in churches across this country, we join in confessing our sins out loud and in public. Yet, few think of it as real confession. It is more a kind of general soriness for not being a better person, a mild affliction, which for its very fuzziness survives the absolution that follows and accompanies the penitent right up to the altar rail. There, kneeling with head bowed and hands raised, we grovel, still pretty much lost in our sin, to receive the crumbs under thy table. Somehow, this is supposed to be satisfying. But as a result, believing we have paid our dues to sinfulness in general, Anglicans seldom experience the exhilaration of a specific sin specifically forgiven. And who would fault us? Confession is a painful business. It's not meant to be easy. It causes us to squirm and to sweat. It makes us face our feelings, something we're reluctant to do. Not that we don't have feelings. It's just that, being Anglicans especially, we would rather let them stew a bit until the opportunity arises to lend them some pageantry, like 
allowing them to leap out during the budget debate at the annual vestry meeting or in unsigned letters to the rector evaluating recent changes in the Sunday liturgy. I was intrigued when Tom phoned me. I will call him Tom on Monday morning to make an appointment. He wanted me to hear his confession. Strange as it may sound, I felt a little excited by the prospect. I don't know Tom well, or didn't. He's a doer, not a talker. An active member of the property committee, the kind of guy who shows up at the church unexpectedly on a Saturday morning to change light bulbs. Last spring, twelve years after he agreed to fill in for a season, he finally retired from teaching the junior high Sunday school class. He'd been doing it so faithfully for so long, people almost forgot he was still at it. He would be approaching fifty now and balding a bit, and is, as far as anyone could tell, a happy man. He's still married to Patsy, the lively woman he met at his first job at the municipal offices twenty-five years ago. They have two good kids. Kevin is a computer whiz who last year in high school created a personal homepage so sophisticated with hypertext references and multimedia sound bites and mini-action video sequences, the Board of Education gave him a summer job to do the same for them. Gaylene, his older sister, sports a black-dyed crew-cut these days and a ring piercing her eyebrow. She prefers black t-shirts and black jeans and heavy steel-reinforced work boots, She wants to be an animation illustrator and, after a year wandering in Europe, is starting at art college in the fall. As I say, good normal kids. I admit, my interest was piqued. I could tell by his voice so low on the other end of the phone I wouldn't have recognized him that this was not easy for him. We agreed to meet today, on his way home from work. I prepared myself by setting aside my small stack of phone messages and trying to sit quietly until he arrived. Maybe it's my own puritanical upbringing. Maybe it's the damage done by the Victorian era in general. But when I think confession, I think sex. Somebody has done it with someone they shouldn't have or they've thought about it. I figured, okay, Tom's had a fling. He's scared, and he's confused, and he wants the secret to lose its terrible power over him. He wants everything to go back to the way it was before. I would not be able to give him that, of course. Forgiveness does not erase consequences. But I could promise him that God would be with him as he worked through whatever he had to do now. And I could promise myself not to take too great an interest in the details. My own sexual awakening had come late and had been further delayed by a religious conversion the summer before I went off to university. I have to wonder now at the timing of that event, so convenient for someone scared to death of his own sexuality. It meant that that cold winter evening after class, when Maria pushed her body against mine as we waited in the bus shelter, I had a ready excuse for my bashfulness. I was a born-again Christian. I have often revisited that period of my life in my mind, slyly revising scenes like that one, pushing my conversion on a few years like a deathbed penitent. Paradise Lost describes pretty well how those years seem to me now, looking back with a heavy sigh. In a way, such slow beginnings have suited me well for this my chosen profession. I read somewhere that 12% of clergy are believed to have committed sexual indiscretions in the course of their pastoral work. 
I see this as a sad but real possibility, given their access to the personal lives of their parishioners and the accompanying power they can wield. But I tend to be the last to know when such possibilities present themselves to me. A while ago, a young woman came to see me in my office. She was new to the parish, and she was seeking advice about how she could become more actively involved. She was tall and lithe, with the almond eyes and full lips of her Slavic ancestors. Her thick hair was pulled up and back, displaying long, dangly earrings. She wore a short-sleeved turtleneck sweater under a denim vest and shorts so insubstantial they disappeared altogether as she casually crossed her thighs. This exotic creature sitting opposite me, blushing slightly as she laid out her tenuous agenda, was the very vision of temptation itself. Yet all I wanted to do was drape my jacket around those slender shoulders and say, There, there, dear, wouldn't you be more comfortable with a little more on? The last to know, indeed. Tom's countenance supported my suspicions. He arrived early and looked awful, his face an ashen gray, as if he had not slept in days. His tie was askew, his suit wrinkled. Sweat already dotted his brow. We met in my office— I suggested we might talk it through first and then go into the church for the formal rite. He nodded his agreement without looking at me. We sat down. He leaned forward, clasping his hands between his knees. I told him to take his time. After several silent minutes, I probed, Tom, how do you want to begin? It all started at a funeral he had attended a few weeks ago. Someone in his office had died suddenly, a burst aneurysm in his brain. He had been 43. Tom hadn't known him well, but still he shared the shock of it with his other middle-aged co-workers. It brought into focus the delicate thread that connects us with everything we know and hold dear. He had arrived late, so had to park a couple of blocks away from the funeral home up a quiet residential street. It was in that old part of the city that has grown more gracious as the years have gone by, the trees lining the streets, tall and full, filtering the midday sun like a lush conservatory. The service was hard, he said. A brother-in-law tried to deliver a eulogy, but broke down halfway through and had to sit down. Tom had found it difficult to control his own emotions— He was grateful when the service ended and the congregation poured out onto the lawn finally to exhale. People lingered over the glasses of wine and the bite-sized sandwiches, not saying very much. When the time came to move on, he said a few goodbyes and started back to his car. The shade of the trees was cool and welcome. He loosened his tie and felt the breeze on the back of his neck. A short distance ahead, he noticed two women in conversation on the sidewalk outside their homes. One had her back to him. She was elderly and gesturing broadly with both hands as she spoke, a purse looped over one arm. The other was younger than him, but not young. She stood listening to the older woman, her arms folded, nodding her head. He didn't think much of this at first. He could not have told me anything distinguishing about either woman— It was just a pleasant diversionary scene as he walked to his car, but all that was about to change. He glanced up again to find the younger woman looking at him, and he saw in an instant that she was not unattractive. She was short and blonde, 
her tanned skin shone off against the whiteness of a short-sleeved blouse and the crispness of her khaki shorts. She was, in fact, strikingly pretty. In a natural, almost athletic way, her boyish hair casually brushed back. And then it happened. Tom had to stop for a moment. He reached in his pocket for a handkerchief and held it to his eyes. He tried to choke back the little sobs bursting from his throat. I waited. My own heart was thumping like a drum. And then it happened. Their eyes met. It was like nothing he had ever experienced before. It was not just that they looked at each other. It was more that they looked into each other, as if they knew each other and had known each other, perhaps always. He was several steps away, and his gait did not falter as he passed them, but their eyes stayed locked onto one another. Speechless, Tom felt lifted to some ethereal realm, outside of time, where, in another life perhaps, they'd once been lovers. He paused again and let out an enormous sigh. It caught in his throat and became a moan. He put his hand over his mouth, stopping himself. He shook his head and said he was sorry. I encouraged him to go on. He walked past her. When he reached his car, he fumbled for his keys. He was shaking. It took both his hands to get the key in the lock and open the door. He slid in and sat for a few minutes, both hands gripping the wheel. What had just happened? Had he just imagined it? Or had something powerful, something unearthly, just passed between him and a total stranger? Finally, he turned the key in the ignition. He pulled out and began making his way back down the street. As he approached the place they'd met, he took his foot off the accelerator and allowed the car to slow. The older woman had gone, but the younger one stood on the walk where she had been before. As he rolled slowly by, uncertain whether to look or just to drive on, he allowed himself to glance over. She was looking at him, her head cocked slightly to one side, she raised her hand about halfway and waved. So, she had felt it too. He wanted to stop the car. He wanted to go to her. It wasn't clear what would happen next, but he didn't care. She possessed a part of him, a part he hadn't even known existed. He knew in that instant he would never be the same again. But he drove on, slowly at first, but then picking up speed until he got to the corner. He looked back through the rearview mirror, but she was gone. He let out a sigh and for the first time raised his head to look at me. His eyes were filled with tears. He was finished. I was caught off guard. That was it? I mean, it had been a touching story, and clearly it had had a profound effect on him, but he hadn't actually confessed anything, at least not yet. Is there anything else, Tom? I asked. No, that's it, he said. Of course, I haven't been able to tell Patsy. I, I, I just couldn't. It would break her heart. I wondered if I had missed something. But Tom, I suggested, nothing actually happened. That's not true, he shot back. I loved another woman. I don't care if it was only for a passing instant. I loved her and she loved me just as surely as if we'd, well, gone to bed together. As if we'd run off together, never to return. That's how it feels. His sense of guilt was real. 
He had experienced what felt to him like an infidelity of the heart, an alienation of his affection for Patsy. But where was the sin? What he described was not lust, nor was it unfaithfulness. He had had powerful feelings of attraction which apparently were shared, but there was no irretrievable action. There's nothing to forgive here, Tom, I said finally. In fact, in a way, you're rather a lucky man. What you experienced, this is the stuff of the romantic poets, the stuff young lovers die for. I don't claim to understand it, whatever happened between you and this woman, but I think it's pretty rare, and in a way, a gift. Tom stared at his hands. I guess the only question, I said, is what you will do now. (laughs) What is there to do, he said. I think about going back to that street, of stopping in front of her house, of waiting for her to come out. But what would happen then? She would come out on the arm of some handsome young guy, her husband, and look up and see me, and I'd be sitting there like an idiot. Or maybe she'd come out alone, and I'd say hello, and she would open her mouth to speak and have the vocabulary of a sailor. He permitted himself a dry chuckle. (laughs) I guess I don't want to know. I don't want that moment destroyed. I want for it to live on in my memory. But God, it hurts. We sat in silence for a few minutes. Then he stood, thanked me, shook my hand, and left. I got my coat locked up and started for home, walking the kilometer or so to the house. I walked slowly, thinking about how strange love is. Tom was lucky, in a way. It happens all the time in movies. Two people struck dumb as if by lightning, their paths scorched and their lives blown to hell. But that's not the way it usually happens in real life. For most of us, love is born of attraction, certainly, but even more of commitment and hard work and years of knowing one another, of attending to one another. As I put my hand on the handle of my front door, I paused. What if things had turned out differently in my own life? What if I had met and married some woman other than my wife? What if I'd made some other life for myself with different children and a different home? What if then, already happily settled, I passed unknowingly my wife on the street, a complete stranger to me? Would our eyes meet? Would we be aware of a parallel possibility, some other life that might have been? Would we recognize each other, even as strangers? Would we glance once, turn away, and then look back, catching something of one another's soul in our gaze? Would we feel a sudden pang of regret? I turned to the knob. That would be the least we could do. And when that fog on blows I will be coming home And when that fuck on road I wanna hear it I don't wanna fear it and I wanna rock your gypsy soul I've been reading from my book How the Light Gets In, a collection of short stories. I'll be rolling out two stories a week in the Mystic Cave through the summer months, and then returning to an interview format come the fall 
when we'll be turning our attention to views of death and dying on the other side of Churchland. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too late to stop now It's too late to stop now